bunch of amateurs. Oh my god! Call yourself a podcaster. This is this is all the cold open. And welcome to the cut time. Welcome to The Cutdown, a podcast all about the art of trailer editing. This is episode number 32. I'm Derek Liu. And I'm Rick Thomas. And we brought the podcast back because the, a highly anticipated trailer has come out for The Matrix Resurrections. And we thought this would be a good time to just talk about the trailer, first of all. But also, the second half of the show, uh, we're going to have an interview with the editor of the trailers for the original Matrix trilogy, Phil Decord, who was one of my old bosses back at Geronimo Productions when I first got started. Um, but before that, we're going to just do a little catch up and then talk about our own thoughts about the new trailer and also the teaser website that came out before its release. Uh, yeah, how's it, how's it going? It's been a while since, since we've uh, podded. What have you been up to? Um, I've been working. Podded? Well, I don't think podded is a Podded. <laughs> podded. Um, podcasted. It's it has been a while. I just feel like I've just been busy nonstop. And right now I'm just very, very ready for a vacation because I feel like uh, every project in the entire world is due within the next couple of weeks. Um, but since last time we recorded, um, I shipped a bunch of trailers. The most exciting one was, not to say that they're not all exciting, but I mean, come on. Uh, the most exciting one was the story trailer for Psychonauts 2 which is absolutely a dream job that I had. Uh, yeah, I got to do that. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of work because it's a, it's a big, big beefy game, about 20, 30 hours, depending. Um, I also did a trailer for Sam and Max. This time it's virtual. It's a VR game for Sam and Max franchise. And I think I've done at least one trailer, maybe two for Jet the Far Shore, which is a new game coming from Super Brothers after... Uh, a long time since their their first game. That's awesome. So for that 20, 30 hours, did you have to go through all of that? Well, I mean, we've talked in the past about cutting dialogue down for games and that it's quite a process, but um, how far in did you have to go? Yeah, I mean, I pretty much broke down the entire game. I mean, there were big chunks towards the end that weren't finished yet, but uh, you know, I, I digitized probably about 20 hours of footage. And then my first sort of dialogue breakdown was like went from like 10 hours to four hours to one hour to probably maybe maybe it stayed at one hour and then broke it up into different categories so it was a lot the scale of the project was such that i realized oh i'm not going to be done with this breakdown for another you know three days or four days or something like that just because i know it's going to take at least like double whatever its current length is Oh, it's so funny. I yeah, it's interesting when you get to the final thing. I, I don't know. I've, I've talked in the past about breaking down stream uh, streaming shows and TV shows, and that you you know you go from like ten hours of stuff, and everything is usable. And then like when you get to the final thing, you're like, I didn't need any of this. But you kind of you <laughs> don't know what you're you don't know what you're going to be doing in the first place. And then always there's that line that like as you distill it down, there's the line that gets away, and you're like, oh, I had that. There was that thing, but I didn't think I needed it. And then yeah, it's. Uh, so interesting. Yeah, it was a lot. And um, so actually, the there were two other trailers done by GNET, who they're in LA. They did an E3 trailer and the launch trailer. And so it was sort of back and forth. And 
it was funny sometimes seeing dialogue that they used in their trailer. I'm thinking, oh, that was a good line. But there wasn't a place for it in my trailer because there are just so many storylines that I possibly could have tackled in that game. But uh, I made it through somehow. I mean, I got some help also from Double Fine People and Two Player Productions who are really good uh, storytellers because they they do documentaries, which is kind of like trailer editing in a lot of ways. Yeah, but you you get more opportunities to use those lines. It is funny, like, you know, especially when you've got such a wealth of material, like that we have to cut it down. And then the client will be like, well, what about that line? And you're like, yeah, I know about that. I know about the job. I think it's great too. I think it's great. Like, it's all great. But, um, you know, we've got to make some decisions at some point. And it's um, it's part of the, it's part of the yeah. job. It's, it's like decisive. that. Um... It's like that We Rate Dogs Twitter account where they're saying, like, they're all good dogs, people. <laughs> but what have you been working on since last time? Uh, yeah, well, I've had a busy year. I mean, one of the most interesting things I did recently was I did uh, pretty much all the trailers for um, with the team at the company I work for for uh, the release of the Halsey album and film that she released into IMAX, um, mm. into IMAX theaters, because obviously there's no... There's no touring at the moment, and I think she wanted to do something alongside the album for the fans. Um, and so that was really cool. Got to cut uh, a lot of trailers kind of in a horror tone because the, the film was very horror. And I got to do my first music video as well um, for one of the one of the songs off the album. And uh, that was a lot of fun. And, and, you know, the pandemic has brought around a lot of kind of opportunities like that of doing other other things that wouldn't normally um normally kind of cross our path but um it's interesting that we talked um before about being kind of indecisive as a trader editor because that segues well i think into the matrix and the teaser i'm going to call it the teaser trader but it's kind of a website uh it came out the tuesday before the trader came for the uh the trader for matrix resurrections came out on thursday and it was a, a website as we've pointed out brilliantly hosted on whatisthematrix.com which is yes the website back in the day when, you know, the Matrix website was one of the first websites for a movie property and it was a great website. It was really well designed and it had loads of kind of Easter eggs and stuff. So I'm glad that they brought that, they brought that back. And I think this, with no hyperbole, I think this could be possibly the greatest teaser trailer of all time. You know me, I love, I love meta things. I love kind of interactive things. I love things that play with the form. And so this, this, website teaser trailer experience is a kind of thing where it pulls up you know do you, do you want to do red pill blue pill which obviously goes very much into the matrix yeah it's like a it's like a very sparse opening to the website where you just see it's all white and there's a red pill and a blue pill and then you click on one of them and then the teaser starts because the matrix did red pill blue pills before it was co-opted by assholes on the internet um but <laughs> yeah, seriously um, but uh, but then you you choose it and and so basically this this was developed by the trader company Bond uh, obviously in in conjunction with with Warner Brothers and uh, they've called it an iterative trader. This is the moment for you to show us what is real. Right now, you believe it's 4.14 p.m. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Could be. This is the first day of the rest of your life. But if you want it, you gotta fight for it. 
And what it is, you know, once you choose, it's kind of like, almost like a choose your adventure kind of thing. You know, you choose red pill or blue pill, uh, and then it's got a different voiceover and shot selection depending on what you choose. And then it will tell you, and this is the thing that was blowing people's minds, it will tell you what time of day it is or what time of day you think it is, because what is reality anyway? Yeah. And then it shows you in a graphic, it shows you that thing. And then, and then they've got the VO guys, two VO guys to record the time. And it sounds actually better than any like siri or alexa saying the time is 2 30 like it's really well recorded it's seamless it ran really well there were no bugs or anything and it showed you different footage i don't know whether it was based on time of day or you know that it was cycling through several different versions and whether each individual shot changed or you know uh, someone said there were possibly eight hundred thousand combinations of this trailer and i guess that's to do with just time and short selection and it just blew my mind i probably watched it about 10 times in different configurations and it was just such an enjoyable experience um as a trailer editor as a fan of film marketing and uh and i thought it was great yeah i mean it's it's absolutely brilliant i'm really curious how the construction works because uh, yeah like you said depending on whatever unknown conditions the shots are different um and yeah the if it wasn't entirely clear basically whatever time it is when you click on it then a voiceover will say you know you think it is 2 43 p.m and i think they probably just had the actors just read out like either all the combinations or each every hour every minute so then that there are fewer edits in there um and i mean even you know the teasers themselves were just really well made especially if they were somewhat not really algorithmically driven, but just kind of like maybe they had like a placeholder for a shot and then they had the sound design put in there. I don't know how they did it, but it's really good. And I, I don't know how many times I watched it, but I definitely watched some YouTube compilations where it's saying, oh, well, here's like, you know, eight versions of the teaser or here's all the footage that we could get from the teaser from the website. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think I think you're right. Like it would have to be kind of you couldn't do different sound design or like you couldn't have had lines tied to those those bits of lines of dialogue tied to those shots because, you know, the whole thing would have just ballooned exponentially. So I think there probably is a standard cue trailer form that you can then just basically intercut any shot and it will look good kind of thing. Yeah. And the shots would have been chosen for that, for it kind of works in any kind of context. Um, but just an amazing undertaking and really impressive. And then that obviously led to the main trailer coming out uh, on the Thursday of that week. Time to fly. If you want the truth, Neo, you're going to have to follow me. As a kind of, yeah, I, I mean, I guess the Matrix is our generation, right? I was, so the, the first Matrix one was 2000? It was like late 90s, I think. So I remember I was in high school when it came out. Um, so like, I think by the time I got to college, then uh, I'd already, you know, it'd already been a thing. Oh yeah, maybe the Matrix sequels were 2000, but yeah, so I was kind of late teens, mid mid to late teens when it came out and it just blew my mind. Um, so it's kind of, it is, you know, it's exciting to, to get back to that world. Yeah. Um, so let's just talk about the trailer itself. So it uses sort of an augment, like a trailerized music cue. What is, you know, what is the, actually the name of the song? The cue is White Rabbit by Jefferson Airplane. Um, and obviously White Rabbit and Alice in the Looking Glass has great 
um, relevance for the Matrix. One pill makes you larger and one pill makes you small and the ones that mother gives you The cue, a lot of people said, oh my God, this is an amazing cue. I can't believe it's never been used. And actually it was used in the Alice sequel a couple of years ago oh. <laughs> uh, where Pink covered it. One pill makes you larger and one pill makes you small. Friends cannot be neglected. Here it just kind of works so great. You listen to the original cue now and you're like, this is just a perfect Trader Q. Trader was cut by Big Picture and the music was augmented by uh, the music company Totem, who do a lot of augments and covers and, and things like that now. And um, it's just a just a great build there. I was no I was kind of noticing about halfway through before the section where Neo kind of blows up the dojo in the middle of a um, the ocean or lake, lake or whatever. Or whatever. Um, you can hear the strings kind of come in of the augment. <laughs> seems like the trailer maker like had the stems to kind of potentially bring in different elements or that was what the the augment was doing but um yeah it it's an amazingly epic music cue and yeah. very relevant yeah and for if people for people don't know stems are when you have like separated audio elements so when you get down to like music track stems it could just be like per instrument so it's like okay here are the strings track here are the brass or even individually like here's the trumpet and the i don't know trombone i don't think there was one in this but uh just sometimes uh if the trailer editor wants to get really nitty-gritty into that sort of thing then it can be good to get that sort of thing it will be oh. currently we're just at the level of brass stems, but trombone stems, you never know. You can start giving Some cowbell. the editor, yeah, exactly, more cowbell, please, in the stems. Uh, it, it means that, you know, kind of when you're working on a thing like this with a library, you can kind of do, instead of just going to them and being like, oh, can you raise the volume in this section or something, right. like, you get the, the constituent elements to be able to do more. And often a client will say, mm, you know, can you, can you lose this instrumentation in this section? And instead of kind of bouncing back and forth, that's something we can do. And it just gives us more control yeah. when you're doing a big thing. But what did you think just generally about the trailer? I thought it was great. I love the kind of the build to it. I love the nostalgia, obviously. I love that there's, there's a bit of the score at the very top um and and it kind of goes to the to the score at the end as well obviously graphically it feels very kind of nostalgic and, and relevant to the uh to the original um feels kind of very contemporary trailer cutting it was interesting looking back at some of the old matrix uh traders and it kind of feels like they they kind of it'll be interesting chat to phil as well um about this but i feel like they kind of moved with the times and this felt very kind of current at the zeitgeist of trader cutting a lot of kind of big hits that fade up shots uh, a lot of say what you see with the lyrics there mm -hmm, yeah. um, which means that you know seeing what you're saying you know you're talking about go and ask alice and you're seeing the kind of the character who represents that thing and uh yeah and, and just talking about taking pills and showing him taking pills and yes them exactly. saying like oh those pills aren't the good ones and he's throwing them out during that time there was quite a lot of that i mean it felt very teasery i liked the um you know i liked the copy that, that took us through it i liked the one cue build of the whole thing although obviously the, the, the beginning with neil patrick harris matrix character there's a lot of comedy characters in here jonathan groff <laughs> pops up at the end to do the yeah. very meta 
where it's time to go back. How does it feel to go back to the Matrix after all these years? Which is a kind <laughs> of nod there, but I liked that as well. After all these years, to be going back to where it all started. Back to the Matrix. It was really nice. There's, there's one thing that bumped for me, and it was a very strange fade. About eight seconds in, Neil Patrick Harris is saying, um, hmm. basically, are you okay, Neo? And Neo says, oh, there's a lot of kind of strange things happening. And then there's a kind of weird... It's like a close-up. Superimposed shot of Neil Patrick Harris's hand or something. You seem particularly triggered right now. Can you tell me what happened? It kind of yeah. like there's a lot of things in that opening where Neo will say, "Oh, the strange things are happening to me in reality is change," and then they'll cut away and show that. And it's one of those kind of transitions just felt a little jarring to me, like almost they'd left the fades off, um, and they just it just kind of cut to a superimposed shot. Um, but there's sound design there that says, you know, it's a kind of transition. So it's yeah, kind of it's covered a glitch. by the sound design. It's a glitch in the Matrix, exactly. Um, but I kind of hadn't seen that before. Um, and that kind of bumped for me a little bit. But I, again, not massively. It's just something that every time I watch it, I'm like, oh. But no, it just felt um, felt really good to yeah. me as a, tra as a trailer. Yeah, I thought it was really good teaser trailer. I'm sort of curious if they're going to have another trailer. They probably will. But, you know, Christmas isn't that far away. But they'll probably do maybe a fuller one, but I would be fine with it just if they only had this one and then we just went in pretty cold because it's such a, you know, known quantity that, uh, I mean, worked on me. I don't know how much, you know, non-Matrix fans need some convincing to to go in, but I thought that even for non-fans, there's still enough of a story in here for this to really work as a teaser, much like the, the first one did, which is like, we have a whole bunch of images and some, you know, some vague ideas about or some vague questions that make things mysterious but you don't actually really know what's going on you don't really know what the plot is other than like there's something going on there are bad people and we're gonna go in which is kind of all you really get and what you think is the world is not actually the world the matrix is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth yeah and the, and the very first teaser trailer for the first film um is really interesting it almost has, I think, barely any dialogue. And it's just kind of uh, keeps coming to a bank of TV screens, which I don't know if that if that imagery was actually in the first movie. It's in the, it is in the first movie in when um, Neo is being interrogated by Smith. There's, it makes it look like it's security cameras. So that you're sort of zooming in while he's in, in the room. And then later on in Reloaded, you find out that it's like the architect's room. So I think that's the, the one place it existed. I'm curious because I actually I'm not super familiar with this teaser trailer. So I'm curious to ask Phil about that because I worked at Geronimo Productions as an assistant after college, who is the company that made all the Matrix uh, trailers. And I was there around the time when they were doing Reloaded and Revolutions. The Matrix first one was before I was there. But because security was super tight on these films, I basically didn't get to see anything until they were basically done in a lot of cases. Like it was, it was a matter of, Derek, you can't go in the control room right now. We're watching footage. <laughs> like, oh, come on. <laughs> so, but I did like, of course, like make reels and stuff like that for the company. We always put the first Matrix trailer, of course, but I'd never... I never remember seeing the first teaser trailer in any of our like sort of finished tapes and stuff. So I kind of wonder if that was even Geronimo or what the, what's the deal with that one? And the thing about that teaser trailer, I think it was probably done very early because some of the, the iconic shots on, on 
in it you know like there was no bullet time and stuff so i wonder if it was kind of get something out to kind of announce it very early yeah um but i what's kind of interesting the thread of all of those teasers like looking back on it now as a kind of cultural phenomenon that it was like i say they all kind of move with the time it's interesting there's a lot of visual stuff in there obviously they have the kind of the matrix code that comes into these things a lot there was a lot of tvs blipping on and off which was a real like late <laughs> 90s thing <laughs> <laughs> and it'd be interesting to talk to Phil about that as well. Like that's a real graphical kind of element to this transitioning to like slot, stop down a moment. The, the TV will kind of like, right. it will minimize to this little dot in the corner of the screen, which actually used to happen when you send your TV off, it would blip, blip to like yeah. the, the middle of the screen and then the same and the reverse for kind of turning on, which I'm glad they didn't do in the new one because like <laughs> the TikTok kids would be like, I have no idea what's happening. What, what is happening here? Happening what is here? this weird but, um, graphical effect? But I think, you know, it was, it was interesting. There was one of them, um, one of these old trailers that just had probably one of the best, um, I think it was The Matrix Reloaded at the point where, like, obviously The Matrix had blown everyone's minds and they were announcing the teaser. And it just probably has one of the best action montages of all time because you have one of the, just the most incredible shots in the second one. What happens if I fail? Then Zion will fall. They need you. I need you. Personally, I'm not a huge fan of the Zion stuff. I'm not a huge fan of that. Like for me, people were watching the Matrix for the real world stuff, mm -hmm. like the cool, especially at that time, like black coat, black sunglasses, yeah. terrible nokia phone like excuse you know, people... me excellent nokia phone. <laughs> yes yeah but, but, but it was cool you could press a button and it would flip open i definitely knew some people who had that but um you know for me and that was what the, why the first film was so great and then when it got to by the time it got to the third film and there were a lot of exoskeletons running around zion i was like this is kind of why not why i'm into these movies and but but i think reloaded was was the sweet spot of just those, those kind of amazing visuals and We've talked about sequel trailers before as well, but you know you have to do less world building mm -hmm. um, because people kind of know what it was. It's interesting storytelling wise, the first film was very much like, what is the Matrix? Even the website was like, what is the Matrix? And, and you've, got, you've got Morpheus like introducing Neo to the Matrix, which is a perfect kind of thread for a trailer. And then the trailers kind of, as they progress through the series, kind of <laughs> reflect where the series is going and that it's more about, oh, Neo's gonna, you know, change the world and he is the one and... There is only one way to save our city. Neo. And kind of, but, but I mean, you know, what an amazing movie gift um, to, to kind of introduce. Yeah, it is really interesting that, like, so Matrix Reloaded is one of my just top favorite trailers ever. Obviously, I'm biased, but it is interesting to look at that trailer and realize just sort of how little story there is in it and how some of those scenes they're sort of like random, like the, the there's the twins, they just sort of show up and like, hey, I guess they're saying like, hey, there's there are other new characters in the Matrix, but they don't really tell much of a story. They're just kind of cool, but it's just I think it still works. Um, I mean, there's certainly things about like the war and all that, but there's parts like the motorcycle scene, which feels sort of uncharacteristically like not not dead air exactly, but 
I don't know, sometimes when there's a trailer with a lot of dialogue and then there's like suddenly a section without dialogue, uh, it feels a little bit odd, but I think here it just works totally fine. And the, the interesting thing about the, the music, I think, is so the, the last cue is a Rob Dugan cue. I don't know if that's saying that correctly. It's called like, I'm not driving anymore. And if you listen to it, it doesn't really have a whole lot of like of a feeling of actually rising. I feel like I feel like it's it sounds like it's just very repetitive. I feel like if I heard a song like that, my first instinct wouldn't think, ah, oh, this is a climax of a trailer. This is kind of like maybe this is like a middle section, but somehow it works just like the editing. And then at the very end, very end, because it, it doesn't actually like reach a climax. I think they just sort of cut out with an explosion and then they move on to like the Matrix score after that for the title. What if the prophecy is true? What if tomorrow the war could be over? Isn't that worth fighting for? Isn't that worth dying for? really coherent thought in there but i just no i mean they are very they are very interesting i mean the matrix itself itself was very interesting because you you know you know the it was very kind of siloed musically you had the score which was doing its thing and then you had these pop cues it was interesting there was one of the one of the teasers, I can't remember what it was, but it cuts to Rage Against the Machine for the title mm -hmm. reveal. I think it might be the re reloaded teaser. Yeah, it's the reloaded teaser. teaser. Come on! And obviously Rage Against the Machine were on the, the soundtrack to the first film. And this was back in the era of like soundtrack CDs being a huge deal. And I remember mm -hmm. listening to the, you know, playing the whole Matrix music inspired by the music, uh, by the film, but <laughs> right. also like very much in the film as well. Like that was kind of, you know, like propeller heads, um, you know, being in those huge scenes and then ending with the uh, club to death and uh, wake up, I think, Rage Against Machines. So we're very much in that world. and. Again, it'd be interesting to chat to Phil about that. There's a lot of different tones here. By the time you get to Reloaded, it's very epic and the world is going to change. It's very kind of orchestral. Um, some of the earlier films were, were very much in that kind of propellerheads, EDM, kind of before it was called EDM, yeah. kind of uh, dance music territory. Um, yeah, and then Revolutions uses the actual score from the film. Uh, which is pretty rare, but they have that Neo Damarung cue, I think it's called, which is just, uh, you know, big Carmina Burana, O Fortuna style vocals there to for the, the epic finish. very much what was happening at the time you know that was the era of the um jen horvath's uh two towers trailer with requiem for uh, for a dream um traderized and orchestrally brought out with choirs and everything so like that was very much of the time as well like big epic like the spider-man trailer with lacrimosa like big kind of orchestra and choir times like i say they, they really kind of they're a real um microcosm of trailer editing at the time stylistically as well you know there's some of them some of them might, you know, um, look a bit dated, like there's a big kind of, uh, there's a cut of Neo kind of reacting to Trinity doing something and it kind of zooms into his face in that very kind of like early 2000s. There's a lot of white flashes and stuff, kind yeah. of co contrary to the films, which I think feel very kind of, you know, they really hold up. And there's not a huge amount of kind of uh, very conspicuous early 2000s editorial here, um, but there is, there's a bit of it. Yeah, it is funny going back and seeing 
like late nineties, two thousand stuff. And just marveling at how many cuts there were in some of those trailers. And I'm like, Whoa, were, were these trailers really like that? <laughs> but I actually think that the, the matrix ones are fairly restrained in comparison to a lot of them. Yeah. I think also because they have these amazing shots that why would you cut away? Um, so you want it to be on screen for the entire time. Mm-hmm. And you have this like extended slow motion shot sort of thing yeah and also some stuff that you know was kind of ahead of its time like there's some very kind of action montage there's a lovely moment in the in the most recent trailer with uh new morpheus i'm going to call him new sure. morph new new morpheus um <laughs> dude is uh shooting his guns at the and it's kind of obviously on the beat and it's a beautiful moment <laughs> And there's, there's some of that in the old trailers as well. It's very, very interesting, kind of before that really became a thing. Uh, and it was harder to do at the time as well. Like there's some real kind of rhythmic editing. Yeah, I think that even though this the Matrix Resurrections trailer is very much of this time, it is not as in your face as some of other things. Like the, the sound design thing you mentioned with the guns, like there are so many trailers where like, you know, the music cuts out and then it's like, a you know, a little drum fill basically. And like, you know, it wasn't sort of like drawing attention to itself in that way. And then also this, uh, the music, they actually use, you know, the original as opposed to the slow cover, which I think is falling out of favor at this point because there have probably been enough articles published saying, how come every movie trailer has slow cover music? Uh, I think people are probably catching on like, mm, maybe let's try just actually getting the original cue and then augmenting it. And that will probably just be the thing for a while until whatever the next thing is. Clearly over-the-top orchestra and choir. <laughs> yep, we're, we're going to no, go in cycles. No relation. I think we're going to go back to uh, the trailer narration. Yeah, I think the uh, I think the Jefferson Air- Airplane song actually it has the these kind of uh, almost military bum 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 kind of uh, mm-hmm. snare fill drums, and actually I think that's probably what the what the drums are. guns are kind of synced to as well so that yeah work really well yeah i mean this trailer has been running through my head for probably since it's released maybe just because i keep watching it <laughs> but i just find myself sort of like humming the music uh just going about my day the only problem i really had not really problem there's like one shot in the trailer where they're running they're falling out a window and then like the perspective changes and there's like this one shot where it looks like maybe they're going through a window. Anyway, it's it's one shot where it's hard to tell exactly what's going on. And it's the only one that stands out to me as far as like having a lack of visual clarity. And there's like a really, really, really small nitpick. Um, but otherwise... Um, Is it after that they're, they're falling and then it kind of looks like they've fallen into the matrix or something like that. something like that I don't, it's hard to tell even frame by frame to see what's going on there but yeah like they're, they're out the window there's glass falling then they're falling towards the camera and then i don't know maybe what it is it's like they fall into like a mirror that breaks and like what we're seeing is actually not us looking up at them it's us looking down into a puddle or window that they're actually falling into so it, it creates this like effect there but i kind of yeah. i think i i think i kind of liked that moment i think I, I think it did bump as well but I, I i really like it one thing that bumps for me is the reverse of keanu in the elevator with the mirrored ceiling or something like that i might i can't really work mm, out yeah. what's happening there but again like and this isn't even nitpicking this is just like clearly like both of us have you know watch this 
and not necessarily even just because we're podcasting about it like what yeah. just, just because of, you know to kind of see what's going on as fans and um, i'm really excited i wish it was green <laughs> but i must accept that you know 15 ish years has gone by and it's okay to uh for the for the world to look slightly more orange yeah now it's going to be either a little blue or a little orange or red just for that motif yeah i'm really curious what it's going to be like because also um there's a bunch of shots here which are just absolutely direct callbacks to the film like trinity sitting at her computer like in the first film and then there's the shots that look like sort of like the subway fight scene in the original so i feel like either there's going to be a lot of those things in this film or they were pulled out to sort of create some visual questions like oh why is this the same scene from the first film but it looks different now so I'm sure there's just so much speculation on the YouTubes, but I'm not going to be watching them. I'm just going to watch the films. Yeah, I mean, speak, speaking kind of stepping outside the trailer, but also kind of about the trailer. Like, I know nothing about this. It's Resurrections, obviously kind of repeating, rebooting, going through the same motions again, but in a slightly different way is very much built into the core of the whole story of the matrix yeah um so you know if any movie was basically going to reboot itself by doing exactly the same thing this one definitely has license to do it um that and the dark tower but um i'm not gonna i'm not gonna go there (laughs) (laughs) um okay so great well uh we've speculated on the origins of these and obviously you have a kind of a front seat view to to some of the creation of the, the this early marketing as well but let's turn to your interview with one of the originators of of this amazing marketing. Uh, Yeah. So just a little context. So I worked at Geronimo Productions for three years after college. And Phil was, I think he was vice president at the time, at the very least, he's senior editor. And Phil was pretty much always working on the coolest stuff. And I had a little like Twitter gush about Phil a couple of weeks ago at this point, just because, I mean, he's like an editor that I feel like my entire career is me imitating his style badly. (laughs) Like there are some direct things in like fan trailers or even just official work of mine that I'm like, oh, this is me referencing like the cold open for the Bad Boys 2 trailer, which he did. I thought that this was a great opportunity to catch up a little bit and just talk about all this work that to be honest, I never picked his brain about or pretty much any editor's brain about while I was working at that job because I was just a shy assistant. So this will be a good, good time to find out what the creative process was like and also about him working with the founders of Geronimo, uh, Giacomo and Ron. And here's that interview. Today, we have a very special guest, an interview with trailer editor Phil Decord or trailer editor, creative director, uh, legend of the industry, if you're comfortable being called that, Phil Decord. He was at um, Geronimo Productions for about 26 years, now is creative director at Ignition, correct? Yeah, Phil, just say hi first before I get awkward. Yes, uh, creative director, but I'm also head of integrated editorial at Ignition Creative. Oh, that sounds like a big responsibility. <laughs> I say that because I don't know what it means. <laughs> I can explain it to you, but it's uh, it's not as complicated as it sounds. It's basically head of editorial. We call it ed- integrated editorial now because we feel like people who can do editing should be able to do more than just cut trailers or TV spots. We think we can expand our horizons so that people can do more digital work, more social work. We don't want to be so siloed as we once were. And Phil's also from Montreal, Canada, went to NYU, 
And he has edited trailers for films such as The Matrix Trilogy, Mask of Zorro, Spider-Man, Gangs of New York, V for Vendetta, The Departed, Sherlock Holmes, The Guy Ritchie One, uh, Shutter Island, the teaser for Steve Jobs. Trailer for Steve Jobs, actually. Oh, the trailer. Sorry. Trailer for Steve Jobs, the teaser for Rogue One, the one before all the reshoots, as far as I remember. Correct. And also at Ignition, you've done work on the Star Wars Visions show Correct. and Raya and the Last Dragon, I believe. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's plenty I'm leaving out, but we don't have all day. <laughs> um, but yeah, I thought that because the recent uh, trailer came out for The Matrix Resurrections, that this would be a great time to talk about the original Matrix trilogy trailers. Because, I mean, there's some of my favorites. And also because I was an assistant at Geronimo Productions during Reloaded and Revolutions, I have like a little bit of an inside uh, scoop. But really, to be honest, not actually that much because... My memory is that, Phil, you were like at the end of the hallway and every now and then something cool would come out of your room. We'd watch it in the control room. Other than that, it was like, I didn't even know what you're working on for the most part. <laughs> but yeah, I just want to talk about some nerdy like editing stuff, some nitty gritty things. Sure. And uh, for anyone who is interested in Phil's like backstory, if you go to the podcast Trailer Geeks and Teaser Gods, there's a lot of history there that Phil went over, which we're not going to rehash here, so you can listen to it there. But first, let's start with a little bit about when you were an assistant, because I'm really curious, because you started at Geronimo in like... 93, beginning of 1993. Geronimo had just formed at the very end of 1992, having sprung forth kind of from the canoe company, and Ron and Giacomo started Geronimo in the Around Thanksgiving of 1992, I came in as an intern at the beginning of 1993, an intern from NYU. What did the company look like? Was it just Ron and Giacomo or was anyone else? No, Ron Giacomo, Paul was there, Jacinta Orlando was there. There was a a series of even uh, Jay Friedkin, who is still a a titan in this industry. uh, He was still there as their uh, lead editor. There was a lot of talented people. It was still a very small shop, as most of them were back then. What were you editing on? Was it still all film? And was there video? Was there even an Avid yet? There was an offline system. Most of the editing at the time was being done on film, on rewind benches and on a flatbed. We had just gotten our first Avid. It sat in a corner. Everyone was terrified of it. Uh, I think it ran off an Apple IIc at the time or something, you know, preposterous. It was an amazing time to get into the industry right then, to see it change literally from film to non-linear editing and the linear editing in between. Did you do much Linear editing, so for people who don't know, linear editing is basically tape to tape, like from, was it three quarter inch tape maybe? Yep. My very first TV spot that I ever kind of cut and presented, I did for Demolition Man. Stayed late, many nights using the offline system. And of course, you know, with the offline system, if you want to sort of change a shot, overlay a shot, that's fine. But if you want to actually lengthen the whole spot... You got to lay it back. And you, of course, you're going down generations. It's a very cumbersome, but it's what we had. You know, putting in in points and out points and watching the machine do its little tape to tape thing is kind of fascinating. And so I cut the spot on my own. And if memory serves, we were delivering four spots on the movie. And they decided to add mine as an extra. And as luck would have it, the only spot they wanted to finish was my spot. So that was the first spot I ever finished. That probably felt pretty good. Yeah, it felt great. Um, so what were your like first assistant duties that you remember? Like, were you like putting bits of film in books or something? Or what did that look like? The first the, the assistant duties that I was responsible for at that time was doing narration sessions, doing uh, at the time, because we were working on film, to send something out, we'd have to mix down the two mag. We had two mag tracks. 
one for dialogue, one for music, dialogue and sound effects, and one for music. Before we get sent to a client, we would have to take those two mags into the dub room, mix them down. The editor would come in and mix it. And I'd be responsible for you know rigging it all up, taking the 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 mix, adding it back, and then getting the tape ready to go out to what we called satellite, because you know most of the clients at the time, except for Miramax, were in LA. We'd have to actually send everything via satellite to the clients in LA. Oh my god! Yeah, and Geronimo Productions is uh, famous for being one of the few trailer houses in New York to this day. Mm-hmm. So when you say mix, did you did you like have to do like a live mix of like you know dumping down the music? It was a live mix. The editor would sit there and just you know tweak a little bit, push some dialogues, and pull the music back when he or she thought it was necessary, and we'd mix down to a to a separate. I, I can't remember if it was quarter inch tape. And then that would have to be matched back with the picture and then put on tape and run over to the side. It was incredibly cumbersome, but it also, it, it teaches you a lot of things. I remember at one point, my partner Ron had been mixing something down, but I'd left an equalizer on. So the dialogue track had all mixed up and I had to kind of re, you know, replace the whole thing together. And the time was of the essence having to run things to satellite. It was, uh, you know, it was a good, good molding experience. Wow. And that must have taught you a lot just about uh, mixing that you wouldn't otherwise have had. Probably people who do digital now certainly don't have that sort of maybe sensitivity to that. Absolutely. The other thing that I was, you know, doing more often than I wanted to is we'd be told, and I'll use Demolition Man as another example, because you're working on film, they deliver the film to you on film reels. Mm-hmm. If you need to make a change, well, all right, I'm missing two frames of Wesley Snipes. They're in my trim bin somewhere amongst hundreds of other feet of film. And I remember diving into trim bins looking for two distinct frames of Wesley Snipes so that we could lengthen a shot by two frames that had been shortened. Oh my God. You must so, have had a lot of like like bright lights around you or something like that to be looking through all the film. <laughs> As an assistant, one thing I remember was there's certain things that you just have to do over and over and over and over again, where you basically, it's like your wax on, wax off sort of Kung Fu and training. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's like, you know, keyboard shortcuts in the Avid. But did right. you have something that you did as an assistant that maybe like if someone asked you now, even you'd be like, yeah, sure, I got it. I'll do that. You know, give me the machine. <laughs> Anything you remember right, like well, that? Back then, you know, the machines, again, starting on film, it was it was more about uh, marking things up for dissolves. Like if we wanted to have a dissolve on film, we literally had to mark up the film, send it out and have that dissolve executed out, out of house. So that was stuff. Cleaning film. There were certain things before we'd go to do a film to tape. You know, Phil, can you go clean this? Sure, I know how to do it. Let's go. There's a way process. You run it through, clean the film up, clean the mag up so that we get the sound mix right, we get the picture right before we go to film the tape. All sorts of stuff like that. The one thing I thought was um, the slightly off topic, but one of the things that I thought was so interesting about that first ad that we had was I remember uh, Ron was cutting the trailer for Speed at the time. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking at the problem, like, because what we were planning on doing is taking all the sound elements, putting it back onto mag, and then taking that to the mix. And I remember looking at the ad and thinking, all right, this is all digital tracks. You've got, you know, say 12 distinct digital tracks. We have a DA88 player. Couldn't we just go digitally onto a DA88, no sound loss, digital to digital, take that tape over to the mix? And I remember someone saying, you're probably right. No one's ever done that before though. And I think we ended up doing it. I may have even, rather than transfer it to mag at Geronimo, I think I transferred everything to DAT tapes and just took those to the mix and said, put those on mag, because I know that they're going to be digitally accurate. And not to be, you know, toot my own horn, but I think this was the infancy of like, why are we even going to mag anymore? Why don't some of the mixers that end up going to do a whole rack of the D88 tapes? 
because that would be a way to just sort of mix off those tapes, off those tracks, all digital, no sound loss, and not having to deal with the rigors of mag. And so for some context for the, the listeners, so mag is like magnetic tape, which is probably two tracks of audio or? No, usually usually just one. I mean, you can get full full mag, but the, what we were dealing with is just one stripe of, of audio. Is that like, is it like quarter inch or? It looks like film. It's got the sprockets and everything, but it's got one little sort of brown track along and that's almost the same thing you get on like a tape recorder tape. Yeah. And then DAT is digital audio tape. And then D88 is another sort of digital audio tape that has like... Yeah, it's it's a, it was meant as a video format, but it's actually, it could be used or was utilized as eight distinct digital audio tracks on a videotape, essentially. It turns out that sound has always been a big part of trailer editing. I mean, the first time you have like an Avid and, and being able to edit lots of sound onto there, which even at the time, you could only output like eight tracks of audio from the timeline. Right. But still... That must have just been mind-blowing to be like, wait, I can just put audio anywhere now and then move it around. I mean, this is one of the things I've talked about in terms of modern editing. There is something kind of wonderful about the process of first working on film where you have two tracks. You've got dialogue and sound effects on one track, music on the other. That's all you get. You have to be very judicious about how you use those tracks. Then you go to Avid, the early Avid, where you've got maybe four, maybe you've got eight, but that's all. The limitations sometimes I think are really, really good. I know a lot of people today, it's like, I've got 36 tracks. All right, here's the first five seconds. I'm going to use all 36 tracks. And it just becomes this, as I keep calling it, it's like this Jackson Pollock of people just throwing sound effects everywhere and a lot of it being unnecessary. I think you've got to start small, add as necessary, but don't utilize 36 tracks just because you have them. For all that work to add just a simple dissolve, you must have really considered, do you actually need that dissolve pretty long and hard? Exactly. You couldn't just like, there was no undo on film. And um, even on the offline, there was no undo. You had to be very committed and, and determined about what you needed to do and why you need to do it. There's some beauty to the undo button nowadays, but there was something also very special about, I have to be very sure that what I'm doing is the right thing. I don't have the luxury of just sort of undoing it. You have to commit to certain things. Did you do things like study like film theory and like things with other movies and to help you understand like, oh, a fade will mean this and this. I, I did a bit at NYU, but I, I think I learned a lot of it sort of on the job. It, one of the things I learned at NYU is, you know, a lot of people like myself, you go to NYU thinking you know so much about film and you graduate realizing you know virtually nothing. And that in itself is a pretty good education, but so much I learned sort of on the job. And what was interesting at the time, as we got into Avid, even though we were working on Avid, the end result was going on to film. So I knew some people that were doing like a seven frame dissolve. And I said, you know, that doesn't translate to film. That's not gonna, you know, so at some point this has to go back to 24 frames per second cellulite and you can't do that. Nowadays with obviously with video, we have a lot more latitude to play around with, you know, you could 19 frame dissolves or whatever. You can really manipulate it because you're still dealing with the same realm. When we were dealing with film, you had to be respectful of the fact that like, this had to look right. And a four frame dissolve on film is gonna look like a glitch. Let's get into some Matrix talk. So let's talk about uh, the new one, the Matrix Resurrections, which um, was done by Big Picture. Correct. Um, and the website was done by Bond. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what do you think of the whole thing? I thought it was well done. I have some issues with it, but I think I'm, I'm somewhat prejudiced, obviously, because of what I bring to the franchise. So I, I certainly don't want to in any way disparage the work. I think it's a, it's a tremendous amount of work. And knowing there were so many other companies involved in you know the creation of this, I think it's a great end result. It's amazing to see the franchise come back. Uh, there's certainly an appetite for it. I'm curious to see 
how they distinguish themselves from the original trilogy. But I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see what, what happens next. Do you think it would be really difficult to work on the new Matrix films? Or do you think working on the originals would give you an edge to, to work on them? What's interesting about not working on the new Matrix film is, and I was talking to a, a, another industry professional the other day who said what often happens, uh, he had worked a huge, absolutely huge trilogy. And then when a secondary trilogy came to light, he assumed that they would work on it. And the client said, no, we're going, we're going in a new direction. And I, I respect that from clients, but I, I also find it a little bit, uh, I, I find it frustrating because there's that notion of like, well, you did the original trilogy. There's no way you could pivot and do something different. Well, I, I do something different every day of the week. I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a poor assumption to think that we could be so tied to one style of trailer making that we would not be able to execute a different style. And frankly, having seen the finished product, I think Ignition would have had an amazing, amazing shot at doing some, some terrific stuff. Cool. It wasn't such a grand departure from the original trilogy as to make my skill set or our, our skill set um, irrelevant. Mm-hmm. But that's just my opinion. I'm... Yeah, of course. Let's just go to, back to the original trilogy. Sure. Before we get to the first Matrix or the full Matrix trailer, there is a Matrix teaser trailer, which I barely knew anything about. Yeah, that was done, I believe it was done in-house at Warner Brothers. I think it was done by the Idea Place, but I'm not entirely sure about that. It was a really great piece of music, really interesting piece of music. Um, yeah. All, there was no dialogue for the most part. It was, yeah, it was just all sort of visual cutting. It was interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, think I, I might have seen it in theaters, theaters but when, when I was just, just looking up things for this episode, I was like, wait, what is this teaser trailer? trailer? Is this a fan trailer? I'm like, no, no this, this is official. official. So, so I'm like, but I don't remember while working at Geronimo ever seeing that on like finished tapes. So I think maybe... Uh, Drama didn't, didn't make it. it. Right. Drama didn't do it. But it, and I'm not sure exactly why it didn't seem to get very much traction. The thing I want to get out of the way is the story I heard about the Matrix trailer that you did is that it is version one. Pretty much version one. The only issue was I think the cut that I delivered was like maybe a second or two over MPAA limit. It might have been 232. And we needed to trim a second out of it. That was pretty much it. The only other things were minor tweaks based on the availability of certain visual effects. Again, it was like maybe having to shift a shot of a Sentinel by a couple of frames because they couldn't render out those frames in time because there was a there was a time crunch on it. Sure, but there were no like extended conversations about the direction of it. It was just it's no. like okay, nope, fix this up, nope, and then we're, we're good. Which for people who aren't in the industry, that is this is in- incredibly rare, if not just basically never happens. The joke is usually that the finished version is you know final final forty seven R alt. 29 or something like that, <laughs> which you can parse out how many versions that actually is. Exactly. What kind of shape was the film in when you got it? Like, was it a feature that you got? Did you get like a bunch? Was it like a really long cut or what What did it look like? Well, for one thing, I just want to talk about first about sort of security, because you know how secure movies are these days in terms of their delivery, handling and multiple different passcodes and everything to get access to things. I remember showing up at the office one day with a package outside our front door. And I'm like, hmm, wonder what this is. Turned out it was the Matrix just left outside the door. We had it on three quarter inch tapes. And I remember at the time, I believe it was uh, someone, I'm not going to mention names, but th- the, the idea was that we'd been sent this movie from Joel Silver, but we weren't sure if we were going to work on it. You know, it was just, we'll see. Let's take a look. Joel at the time, I think, had told Gary Canoe that he thought he had the new Star Wars on his hands. 
which, you know, we thought that can't possibly be possible. So I remember sitting down with Ron and Giacomo. We put the tape in, started real one. I think after about 15 minutes, I said, I, I want to work on this. It blew us away within the very first, you know, the opening of the film. But we did have a full feature. There were some rough spots to it. And again, we were very fortunate that the, we actually had a full cut. We were working off dailies. We weren't working off some of the, you know, more rough patches like some of the other films we've worked on it was a it was a complete feature it wasn't too long it, it was pretty much it was fairly intact it wasn't three hours three and a half hours like some of the scorsese stuff that we've worked on but it was very uh, digestible the matrix has no lack of cool stuff to show in a trailer which mm -hmm. is probably both a good and a bad thing someone asked me once is it hard to work on a film you really like or is it harder to work on a film you don't like and i said it's always easy to work on a film i don't like because i don't you know, I'm, I'm not like tied to it, but it's a film that you really, really like or that you really, really love that you feel so much more pressure to to make sure that other people see it as as a you know, and feel for it the way that you do. So there was a lot of pressure on on that front to make sure that this needs to be people need to see how great this thing is. And otherwise, I feel like a failure. Actually, yeah. I want to get into what the creative process looked like between you, Ron and Giacomo. So Ron and Giacomo are the owners of Geronimo Productions. That's where the name comes from. If you come combine the names Giacomo and Ron, it becomes Geronimo. Right. But like, you know, from my perspective as an assistant, it's like, oh, Phil went into that room and then at some point tapes come out and I, I watch a finished trailer and I also see like, you know, maybe he's talking with Ron and Giacomo sometimes, but I don't, I'm not in on the conversation. So I'm curious, like, how do your creative process start? Do they usually say like, you know what, Phil, just do something first, then we'll talk, or do you talk about it first? How did it look like? Every different, every editor has their different process. My process with Ron Giacomo that worked so successfully throughout my career has been, let me figure out, let's start with 30 seconds and see if we're going in the right direction. I know other people are like, I'm not going to show anything to anyone until I've got a two and a half minute cut. The problem with that is if you're in the wrong direction, I hate to tell someone, look, you got to go back to square one. And now we've lost, you know, a certain number of days. And I also want to point out that also Gary Canoe was part of this process. This was also because this was his connection with Joel Silver. And uh, he was a, an important part of the producing team. And so Gary Canoe is who Ron and Giacomo worked under before. At the Canoe Company. Before forming uh, Geronimo Productions. Correct. So the process for me usually, and this is pretty standard, like I take the movie, I break it down. I sort of do my strings of like what I consider to be critical dialogues. And I do my visual strings. I sort of boil the movie down to sort of a series of easily searchable sort of elements and then figure out how it's like, you know, taking all the pieces of a puzzle, putting them out, rearranging them and figuring out how I'm going to put them back together in a different format. So when you say you do 30 seconds, is that like the first 30 seconds, like the middle, yeah. what, which, which 30 seconds? The first 30 seconds, sometimes occasionally I'll, I'll, I'll say, look, here's the back end. Here's what I think we should wind up at. And this is the beauty of nonlinear editing is I can create the back end and then work my way to the beginning. Right. But I always feel like the beginning is the critical. That sets the tone. That puts us hopefully in the right direction. It's also good to have some ideas of where we're going to wind up and then fill in the middle. But openings are critical. Is that how this the first Matrix worked then? You like do the cold open with Trinity and everything? Well, or? here's the thing. And, and as much as I want to take complete credit for everything, that's not really true. I This is a process. This is a collaboration with some amazing, talented people. My first thing that I showed to Ron Giacomo and, and Gary, I started off with the Lightning and with Morpheus. And that was my opening after Green Card. And I'm not sure who it was in the room said, that's great, but I feel like there should be something at the beginning, something to grab, something that just like has a wow factor. 
So I went back and I'm like, okay, what if we do this opening with Trinity? And then, you know, we wind up on Neo saying, whoa. And then there was a tremendous amount of debate is like, are people going to laugh at this? Is it going to be too like Bill and Ted? Are people just going to not take it seriously? And that lasted for days. You know, just like the, the question of, can we really have Keanu saying, whoa. And then we'd build out another minute or so. And then I'd have them come in and take a look and like, well, I like that shot. That shot's not quite working. What if we did this? And it's a, you know, it's a collaborative thing. It's not just, uh, I'm not just lone wolfing these things. I know some people probably are more independent than others, but I'm a big fan of the collaborative process. Okay. So then you did the, your opening, then they came up with a cold open idea and you kept on going. Were there any like parts of the trailer that you just it was hard to figure out or break like hmm, this one transition or anything like that well the one thing we realized very early on is the and this happens for a lot of trailers is getting bogged down in the minutia of story elements can be really really dangerous and especially for a movie like that because the story is complex and it doesn't come across well in a trailer so it's better to deal with like sort of broader ideas than tiny details. And that's where we, early on we had this discussion. We're not going to, we're not going to be able to sort of explain what the matrix is, but that becomes the hook. If you want to know what the matrix is, you got to go see the movie. Yes. And then you go to the website, which has the, the Nebuchadnezzar screens on it, right. uh, which I mean, now it's different, but at the time it was, it was a very nineties website, kind of like mm-hmm. maybe, maybe an evolution of the space jam one. Right. Okay. I have some like sort of like process questions for like, while you're in the middle of like an edit, basically. So I was saying before that, you know, Matrix has so many different visuals. What's your process for weighing your options when you have like too much good stuff? Like we have, you're between like two or three shots for like a moment. What guides your thinking? Well, there's there's several schools of thought. I mean, some, you know, some filmmakers like to think, you know, let's let's hold back. Let's leave something for the for the audience. This was one of those movies that people were always going to be blown away by this. There was very, there's the overall trailer comment of like, you know, Why'd you ruin the movie in the trailer? Well, if I can ruin a movie in two and a half minutes, then there was not much in that movie to begin with. Um, there's some schools of thought of just use everything. Like, I mean, in this trailer for Speed, you literally see the bus blow up. And yet no one complained about it. No one thought it ruined their movie going experience. That doesn't mean I think you got to put the kitchen sink in all the time. I think you got to be very judicious about the shots you choose. And I think there's a, a luckily a growing consensus that sometimes like rather than throw in three shots throw throw one shot in there that just really resonates with people and luckily the matrix was just full of these just this eye candy that you just can't you know can't get away from where did the music come from or how did was it sitting around for like because the last cue is that enigma cue the enigma cue was a point of contention because Ron and I had used it ages ago on a trailer for The Long Kiss Goodnight that someone else finished using that music, using it, in my opinion, poorly. And there is a real debate as to whether we could use the cue again. I thought it, it, it absolutely, you know, I think Gary had pulled some other music cues that I cut in the back end. We had several back ends, but there was a huge debate. And I, you know, I think the, <laughs> the end result prevailed well, because I think that piece of music was exactly what the trailer needed. And were the rest, was it film score or um there was a there was some crystal method in there there was a cue that i picked out a lot of yeah there was a couple of library cues um you know we not having a music supervisor back in those days we're left to our own devices and i people like me in orlando would have our own little stores of music goodies our little grab bags of things that we desperately wanted to use and i think that's how that came about was just digging deep into the things that sounded right to me yeah orlando is being one of the other editors at uh, Geronimo. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, this is like a really specific question. So there's the one part in the middle of the trailer, which is like super, super duper fast cut because it's like right before, it's like a rise before welcome yep. to the real world. What is your strategy for like choosing visuals for something that's like so fast cut? And like how also like, what's the minimum number of frames that like you, you tell yourself, this is how much I can put in there? There's kind of a threshold. I think at the time in terms of film frames, it was like three or four and it's interesting because I think back in the day, you couldn't even do this. And people, people thought there was no way that you could possibly show something so quickly and have people register it. I think ever since we had the MTV generations where we're kind of used to being now bombarded. In terms of the choosing process, sometimes it has to be something iconic. Like you can see, if, if I flash an eyeball, a gun, a lipstick on lips or something your brain can actually kind of register obviously this had some more arresting images but part of it's also not even having to register every single shot it's the flow of the entire little sequence just go whoa what did i just see back in those days you know today i, I can go to youtube and i could watch it again and go through it frame by frame and all that those days it was like i don't know what i just saw but i need to go find out what i saw <laughs> right <laughs> Let's talk about uh, the sequels too. Was that also um, like a feature that you're cutting from? Or? No, that we got we got a few little nuggets at a time. We did not get a full feature for a very very long time. And the first thing, and they also because they did two and three back to back, we were getting little tiny nuggets from both. Because the first thing we were going to do was sort of a, a teaser and a Super Bowl teaser, and it was going to combine Revol Reloaded and Revolutions together. What was it like starting on the, the 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 sequel to Reloaded? Was it still the same process? Like you start the opening, or how do you how did you break it? The sequel ones came more as a concept because they were like, what do we do? What's the first? You know, it's not simple storytelling because people know this. We came up with the idea of starting with the graphic, and the the thing about the graphic, and I think this holds true for the new movie as well, is like as soon as you see that graphic, you know exactly what you're talking about. It is so unique. It is part of pop culture now. So we decided to lean in with the graphic first like that. You know, we, we actually started with a bit of sound, which is unusual. I don't usually like to start with sound without picture, but on the teaser, just starting with the sound, which is organic to the movie, then seeing that little dribble of, of Green Matrix, and then people just, then you had people. Then all you could do is screw it up from there. And, and you know, going into Morpheus, then using some of the, the arresting shots. But it was it was tough too, because the visual effects as arresting they, as they were in Reloaded and Revolutions, they were trying to be a bit of ahead of their time. And it was tough to see if those were going to, if they were going to be able to sort of pull those off as effectively as they did. Because in the original, there are some visual effects, but there's also a lot of practical effects. Bullet time was not just strictly a visual effect. It was an actual practical, very clever. This was relying more on what we would call traditional CGI. And it was still kind of in its infancy then. And it wasn't like super finished when you first were getting cuts? No, it, it got a lot better, but it was, it was, you know, some of the shots were a little bit tough. We were hoping that they would look good enough for finish. But that was more about the Super Bowl spot. The very first teaser we were using, we were relying on sort of slow-mo shots, big set pieces, you know, some motorcycle shots, just kind of giving the whole scope of it, not going into some of the little tiny details. For the first teaser and for the first for the Super Bowl spot, we did not have features. Then we had the feature for Reloaded, and that's when I cut the piece with, that has the Trinity opening, sort of doing sort of a parallel to the original Matrix opening with her. And at that point, we had a full feature. You know, again, some very rough spots to it, but it was at least complete. Reloaded is pretty notorious for having like a pretty convoluted storyline. It goes in lots of places that are even when you watch the whole film are hard to understand. The one thing about Reloaded, we didn't have the scene with the architect. The, the feature that we had ended right before that. We didn't have the, uh, the Nebuchadnezzar blowing up. 
we've had this before in other filmmakers where they would give you what they think you needed for the trailer, but nothing beyond that. Sort of like when, you know, when Paul cut the trailer for Seven, uh, David Fincher refused to give us the last reel of the movie. And I think that was fine. That probably makes sense. Were there any particular challenges on like Reloaded or Revolutions that you're like, ah, this is like driving me crazy? Well, again, you know, like, like you said, like, but story, story can be very, very dangerous when you're getting into it, because if you get bogged down in the little details, it's more of an overall, what are we trying to get across? It's a new matrix. There's more Agent Smiths. It's more and more, but we're not getting down into the nitty gritty of exactly what's going on. We've got the love affair between Neo and Trinity, but we're not, you know, it's using like lines that uh, Morpheus has that are more broad. Like this is, a, this is a big event. This is something important. Everything, this is going to change our lives, but not explaining what the details are. Let that be for the movie going audience. Right. Let that question sort of sit. Is there anything else sort of like the Trinity opening of the first Matrix trailer that like when you look at it, you're saying that's not me. That's this person. That was their idea for the other ones. Nope. Okay. <laughs> Congrats. <laughs> <That's very good. laughs> Did you edit also the international and the Enter the Matrix versions too or? Uh, yeah, I did Enter the Matrix, and Dave Rosenthal from Geronimo did the Animatrix. It's funny because I work in game development now or I work with game developers. I actually, one of my friends was a developer on Enter the Matrix. Oh, cool. And I was like, oh, that's funny that I worked at the place that made the trailers for the Matrix. And then later on, when I was, I went to Blockbuster to rent it to watch the trailer that they made at the place I was working at. <laughs> Are there any like stories of working on the Matrix that like I didn't cover in here that was a fun moment? One regret I have that we probably should have thought about it was, you know, Marvel is well known for having their, you know, post-credit scenes, etc. I think it was the Wachowski's idea, but we cut a teaser for Matrix Revolutions that was put on the tail of Reloaded. And I remember, I don't know if it was Joel Silver, someone calling up saying like, this is a teaser, but it's permanently, it's part of the movie. It's permanently attached. They will not snip it off. Whenever you see that movie, you will see that teaser at the end. And it was cool cutting that teaser and using a, 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 one of my favorite pieces of music from the movie, uh, Snow Falling on Cedars. And you are all that stands in his way. If you cannot stop him tonight, then I fear that tomorrow may never come. we probably shouldn't have we should have had a credit in the movie we should like you know it's in the movie it's part of the movie i thought geronimo probably should have had a credit in the movie it should have, but we did we at the time we were just too excited to work on it to actually think about details like that here's another question about like starting a timeline because i'm always curious about how editors start a timeline because if you ask three editors how they start a timeline you get three different answers at least mm -hmm. are you a person who starts with visuals? Do you start with music? Do you start with dialogue? How, like when you're building that first 30 seconds for your trailer? Depending on the job, I usually start with audio. I, I feel like it's almost like cutting a radio spot and then finding the amazing visuals to match that radio spot. In some respects, depending on the movie, other movies, there might be one particular like, okay, I know that that shot is going to be my opening shot. Now I need to find the audio that's going to support that. And other things like, you know, right. the Trinity opening from, um, 
reloaded, I knew that was going to be the opening. I had the sound design already built for it. I needed to find the music that was going to pace it up properly. Actually, let's get really inside baseball here. Let's talk about the fill string. <laughs> <laughs> Some context here. When I worked at Geronimo, one of the things that I enjoyed most was seeing the sound effects project that we had, where it's like all a bunch of shared sound effects. And one of them in there is this one audio clip called fillstring.aif or something like that. And it has a whole bunch of different sound effects on them. I probably remember somewhat the order they're in, and, and I'm sure it's seared into your brain. Mm -hmm. And there's a little locator at the beginning of every single sound effect. And they're basically all your favorite sound effects that you put in a lot of your own trailers. When did you first make that? I made it over a while. I was basically just compiling some sound effects that I came across and they were they were good for lack of a better word like they were good workhorse sound effects like if you get a nice deep boom I can use that over and over and over again there I mean there's a million of them out there but you get the right one you could just use that same one and and there are a few in there that are a little bit specific that I, I go back and watch some of my old trailers I can hear a certain sound effect like Ugh, I use that thing to death there's like some that just are painfully obviously overused but it was like it, it was a nice it was a go-to when you're cutting something quickly and you have your nice little grab bag of all right i need a hit i need a whoosh i got a bunch right there so it was a lot of it was done out of necessity out of speed it'll probably never happen again because i'm sure <laughs> there's so many companies now that do so much great sound design i would like to create a new fill string but i would like to do it based on all the amazing stuff that's being done by all the great sound companies out there one of the things i tell sound design companies i'm like look if you want to really sell me a library design some sounds that can be used in lots of different genres and lots of different spots because most of them I, I get a new sound library I'm like hmm still sounds like Transformers right uh, still sounds like Inception and I'm working on like a, you know a family game here or something like that or a comedy thing or whatnot and there's no robots punching each other I think there's there's room for that in very specific sound design like you're looking for like you know a Gatling gun that's one thing if you're looking for hits whooshes and things that you would I use tend to I tend to use it more to augment music sort of beef up the music hits. That's sort of a sub-genre of the sound design elements. When I first listened to the whole Phil string, when I got the job, it was it was basically like seeing The Matrix. I'm like, oh my God, they're, they're all, it was, I was like the um, Superintendent Chalmers from Simpsons looking at the <laughs> Ralph Wiggum diorama, like, oh my God, they're all here, Chewy! <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I want to talk a little bit some more generally about just like the trailer trailer editing and the, the industry. Sure. What, what was like a tip or a bit of advice that you received like either early or mid or late in your career that really helps you to this day? Like you have someone, you have like your Obi-Wan Kenobi in your ear who's saying this one thing about trailer editing. What is it? Hmm. That's tricky. It, it's funny. The one thing, you know, years ago we worked on this movie Gattaca and there's a scene in Gattaca where two of them go swimming, they're having a contest, one feeling that he was genetically superior, the other supposedly genetically inferior, and they have contests to see how far they can swim before they have to swim back. And the supposedly genetically superior, eventually he bows out, can't do it. He goes, how can you do this? And Ethan says this line, I never see, never save anything for the end. I never save anything for the for the swim back. And I uh, I think Ron might've been one of the one who told me very early on, he's like, put everything in, put the bus blowing up, you know, in the first 30 seconds, whatever you can, you can change it later, but don't be afraid because of the way that we can do the undo and that we can re edit things. Don't be afraid to just put stuff in. My biggest uh, thing that holds me back is I stare at the blank canvas for too long, as opposed to you just sometimes you just got to throw paint up there, move it around, put the pieces up and don't be afraid to just kind of experiment, do something. It's all wrong. Start it over again, but don't sit on your hands and overthink. I think it has to be more active. You have to just like 
do it and then do it over and then do it over a hundred times rather than sit there and not do anything. That's really good advice. I, I also hate the blank timeline. So what I try to do is I call my first version, I, I label it like garbage in an attempt like, well, if it's labeled garbage, then it's okay if it's garbage. But even still, I sometimes have difficulty just putting stuff on there. The other great bit of advice, uh, a friend and client of mine has a method where when we're showcasing a trailer for the first time, he'll sit, he'll have a pad, he'll take notes. And if something bumps for him, he goes, yep, I didn't didn't quite get that. If you try to explain to him why it's supposed to work, we don't get that. We don't get to go to an audience in the theater and say, oh, but you didn't get that. Let, let me explain why. You have to be very, you have to trust some of your knee-jerk reactions and your instincts. If something didn't sound right, then there's a reason it didn't sound right. Editors, I did, I do this myself. You try to justify, well, I had to do it because of this, this, this. Yeah, but it's wrong. And you have to, you have to trust those instincts that if something bumps, you have to address it. Right. Because also when people are watching it in the theaters or at home or on their phone, they're probably not rewinding and say like, wait, what was that? Right. Exactly. The third and last bit of advice I, I got from Ron, which was so important, was we were dealing with, I don't know what trailer it was, but there was some haggling over a couple of frames here or a sound design or something. And I foolishly at a young age made the comment, do you think anyone will really notice the difference? And Ron said very wisely, he said, I'd stake my entire career on the fact that people know the difference. Oh, wow. Whether or not they can articulate it, whether they have the language skills to say what they liked about one trailer versus another, I have to believe that it all matters. Every little, the, all the, the, the little details, the, the minute little things that we do to try to make everything perfect, it has to matter. Sort of in a similar vein, but even more granular, are there any like trailer editing hacks that you have that you just got through experience? So I'll give a really small example. Is that like sometimes for me, when I'm trying to make a sound effects sync on like, you know, a cut to black or something like that, I realize that sometimes having it two frames off is actually looks more in sync to me. Like, do you have anything like that? Yeah, that's always a tough one. My finicky one is that when I see slamming titles and the sound effect is on the beginning of the graphic and not the actual impact of the graphic that drives me bananas, I, I, I just, I I always feel like there's certain things like there's an impact. I need to see the graphic impact, not the beginning of the graphic, but the actual, I've got little idiosyncrasies. I'm trying to think of like hacks. Well, you know, a, sometimes a good rise is a great way. You, know, you always need to build in rises and everything to give it that climax, to give it that huge ending that just blows everyone's socks off. Um, well, it sounds like based off like your advice that you're very, very detail oriented, but is there anything that is in a trailer of yours that you look at and you're like, uh, it's, uh... Oh, <laughs> yeah, lots of stuff, you know, but the other thing is some of it I can cringe in terms of the work that I've done. But again, the process of getting a trailer finished, there are so many chefs involved that goes through so many permutations often during the studio system that like there's trailers I've done that like, yeah, it got finished. It's not, you know, not too, totally proud of it, but that was the process. The director wanted this, the client wanted that, the producer wanted this. I have to remind people that this is a service industry. We are not just making movies for ourselves, we are contracted and responsible for providing a service. Sometimes that doesn't wind up with the, the product you're most proud of, but it is the process. One thing that's a fairly recent thing, I feel, maybe just because the internet, is that people are, they scrutinize trailers in ways that they haven't before. And now that also they have their ability to like make fan edits or parody edits, like you've probably seen the like how to make a blockbuster trailer video. So I think there's probably a lot of people out there who have a lot of assumptions about the trailer industry, even though there is more information, but they probably still get a lot of it wrong. What would you say are the things that people get most wrong when they're looking outside in? Well, the other thing is that some people are not completely wrong. When someone says to me like, oh, trailers all have this whole formula. You know what? So does music. <laughs> Do you not notice that? And almost every song has a very similar format. 
doesn't mean you don't like the song. It means that it's been working so well. It gives people such, you know, positive emotion from that formula. There's, there's a, there's no reason to change unless there's a reason to change. I, I think there's that. There's also like when people say that there's certain formulas, well, having a beginning, middle and end is a formula, but it's also sort of the basis of so much storytelling. doesn't mean it's wrong. It doesn't mean you have to apply it to every single trailer. It's just sort of a a misconception that we sit there, we have a little template, we just kind of carve things out. I mean, the person who's critiquing trailers for having a format or probably making a video essay about the hero's journey. Right. Uh, <laughs> putting on YouTube. <laughs> exactly. Something else that you've been privy to from just being in the industry for so long is probably like trends and micro trends in the industry, uh, which I mean, if you look on sort of outside of the trailer industry articles, like, you know, you have trends like, oh, the Inception thing or the Inner World. And I think that there are actually so many within those trends that they mention. Are there any trends that have come and gone that you wish would come back? Or are there any particular that you, you're glad they're gone or anything? Well, obviously narration, as much as I, I love all the narrators that we work with, I think for theatrical marketing, it was a good challenge to storytelling to not have to rely on in a world. And obviously we rely heavily on graphics, but there's also a, a growing debate as to how complex you can make your graphics in terms of words without people just sort of tuning out. It makes the storytelling a little bit more challenging for the trailer editor because you've got to rely heavily on dialogue a lot more to tell the story. The one trend that I've really, really leaned into that I like when it's possible is to let a scene play out. Not everything has to be, you know, sliced and diced. If you just, if there's a moment, and this goes into also the, the testing process for trailers. If you can create a moment that the audience walks away with, like, oh, that, that scene where that just stopped down and I really got a sense that the woman was in peril or that, you know, the, the killer was behind the door. I think that is a great trend. It's so much more authentic to the film if you can play out a scene and get people, give people a real feel for the movie as opposed to sort of cheating it through our editorial finessing right there's sort of like less to hide if you're showing the whole scene but that depends on the movie that's assuming the movie has the goods to showcase something like that i want to talk a little bit about just the, the different careers within the trailer editing career you've had because you're now a creative director and you're you know head of the editorial but let's start at the beginning again what part of being an assistant do you think made you a better editor watching other editors it was annoying and they hated me for it, but I just wanted to sit and watch and see what they were doing. And occasionally, when the time was right, ask the right questions. Why don't you pick that shot? Usually I'd be told to fuck off or something, but you know, the process of being able to shadow an editor when you get the opportunity has been, it was monumental for me. I mean, that must've been harder to do back in the day because you can't just like open someone's timeline and try to reverse engineer it, right? Right, exactly. But then also, like, I spent a lot of my own time at night going over someone else's cut, seeing how they did it, trying to do my own cut and see if, like, uh, I'd cut something on Demolition Man trailer that I think I showed to Ron. It's like, what, I think these shots, what do you think about, would that shot have been better or what would that shot? And just, you know, going through the process of doing my own editing and getting someone above me to sort of critique it and give me some notes. Now, but so now you're creative director. So how long have you had like a creative director title? I was sort of a creative director at Geronimo while I was there over, you know, supervising some other people. Then I was creative director at the Treehouse for about six months. And I've been creative director at Ignition now for over a year and a half. But I'm also still editing. Mm, okay. So you're still actually getting on in Avid. And oh, yeah. I'll be cutting later today. On Premiere, though, not Avid. What about your experience being an editor made you a better creative director? I think just the skill set of knowing, you know, having the eyes and ears for what's going to look and sound the best, but also you're also the, the, the interpreter for what the client wants a little bit. You know, you're the go between, between the client and uh, the editor and, and sort of trying to get the editor to understand what the client needs are and how to execute, the, execute it with the 
the best editorial prowess. As an editor for so long, how uh, what would you say your feedback process is when you're working with other editors? Because I'm sure it must ha- you must have that temptation in there, be like, if I just tweak this thing here, but but you don't want to give that sort of feedback right to an editor because it's annoying. Right. I mean, that's that's the that's the toughest part is there. You have to resist the urge to push the person out of the chair, which is frankly what used to happen to me. Uh, someone who you know, for lack of a better word, let's call it Ron, would just kick me out of my chair and be like, all right, let me just do it. Let me. Just, it'll be so much faster if I just do this and. I'm trying to resist the urge to do that. I'll do it sometimes on the side where I can look up someone's timeline. I can figure out what was what wasn't working. Oh, I know exactly what wasn't working. They've got these three sound effects there that don't line up. But it's the ability to sort of sit back behind the editor, work with them, and, and, and try to get something achieved without having to sort of push them out of the way and do it yourself. You've been in the industry so long. Who or what are you you chasing? You know, what keeps you on your toes or what inspires you that you've seen? So many things inspire me. So many people inspire me and, and all these great projects coming out, big and small. One of the things that uh, I joke about with uh, my producer, Matt, is we always say, we talk about all the work that we've done, but the best work that I've done hasn't been done yet. I've still got my, my best work ahead of me. And that's got to be what sort of drives everyone. I don't want to, you know, as much as I love the matrix, man, it's over 20 years old. I got, I got better stuff on the horizon and I'm excited to continue to showcase my talents and the talent of the people that I work with. Do you have um, unfulfilled creative goals that you have? So like, I'll give you a small example just for me that I got to fulfill recently is um, I have always loved the trailer for Crank. Mm. With the like the bookend is like my name is Chev Chelios and Space Day, <laughs> and I'm like oh my god I want to make like a bookended trailer like that someday and I I finally got to do it this year I, on the story trailer for Psychonauts two which opens with like the, the more or less the same line of like today's my first day on the job and like just like editors save music and stuff are there any like things like that where it's just in your brain, like, oh my God, this, I don't have a project for this yet, but I wanna, I wanna do this in a trailer. <laughs> do you have anything like that? I don't know if I necessarily have that. I think I approach, there, there's something to, tr- and it's difficult to do when you bring uh, a lot of years of experience, but the idea of trying to approach every single project with a clean slate, like you bring a skill set, but you try not to like, well, I remember I did it this way in that trailer. That's the toughest thing is, is trying to reinvent even an editorial style that you don't wanna just keep, you know, repeating yourself, even if you have certain editorial traits, how do you continually task yourself with being a totally new editor on each different job? And that's, it's, it's, it's hard. It's very, very hard, but I think it's also critical. You have to kind of approach everything with just clean slate. Who would you say are the unsung heroes of the trailer industry? That's a tough one. <laughs> Cause I think, I think they get sung a lot. I don't think there's any, well, there's there's a lot of unsung heroes in terms of people who work in the backgrounds. There's so many great creative directors, there's art directors, there's even like, there's some amazing producers that work in the background that don't always get the the acknowledgement that they should. Uh, I mean, like I said, if I were to win an award, you know, there might be so many other people behind me that contributed to that. And I think you have to embrace the collaborative process. Not everyone gets necessarily an award or whatever, but I think it's it's foolish to think that is it's one person or uh, that just did the whole job. I mean, one of the reasons that we're doing this podcast is because uh, trailer industry is kind of like a black box. And even still, with people talking about it more, there's still so many other people that I think from the outside, they don't know these people exist. Like we talked about uh, music supervisors briefly, which because I worked at Geronimo, I didn't know what a music supervisor was either. Right, because we didn't have one. <laughs> so if people don't know, music supervisor basically is the person who is like the music person that you can talk to and say, hey, working on this trailer, we need music and maybe give them some sort of like direction. Like it's, you know, this sort of movie, give me some stuff. And yeah, because so Geronimo, the ritual was every week 
like Tuesday or something like that, Tower Records released new CDs, and then maybe me or another assistant would go down and get all the new soundtrack scores, and then you pass the CD down the hallway and pick out the ones that you liked or didn't like. Yeah. When I got my first job, which had a music supervisor, I'm like, there are people who do that? <laughs> That's right. They do it for a, for a living. They're really, really good at it, too. They just handed me 20 cues. Mm -hmm. Is there something that you would like to see more of in the trailer industry, like either at like an organizational level or? Yes, diversity. Diversity is, is, is critical. Been lucky enough to work with a couple of organizations that are trying to promote this, that are trying to make sure that it stops, you know, and I, I'm saying this as a, you know, a white dude, that it stops being a complete white dude industry because that's not really reflective of how our society is right now or the entertainment appetite is. But the tough thing is figuring out not just how to, you know, hire more, so let's say people of color, but also get a wider group of the farm team, get people at the educational level to understand there are jobs like this. Like, you know, most people wouldn't know there's a music supervisor job. I had no idea. There's a gentleman that used to work with us who's over at Apple who uh, is a person of color. And he said, you know, I go back to my neighborhood and people there don't even know that my, he's a, he's an art director in print. And he says, people in my neighborhood don't even know that my job even existed. And that's the problem is you got to start at the root and figure out you got to educate people that there are so many wonderful jobs available in this industry. And then on, on our part, we have to make sure that we make sure that those opportunities are there when those people rise up through the educational system and, you know, give internships, et cetera. Have you ever had any ideas for like how to bolster that sort of initiative? Yeah, we talk about it internally a lot. And we also deal with a bunch of other outside organizations of industry leaders that are trying to make sure that we get this thing on track. Top of your head, give me, you know, five trailers you love. You know, I'll, I'll go back even so far as like, you know, Giacomo cut this amazing trailer for The English Patient that still resonates with me. There's certain things I see that I just go, wow, those, that seems like so long ago. And yet those things are so perfect. Those trailers that just seem to really capture. And that's the ones I love the trailers that both capture the movie in a very authentic and organic way, but then are themselves great marketing materials. Speed, Pulp Fiction, you know. Those, the, those classics. If you had your way and you could like force some new editors now to like go back to in time maybe and do some of the things that you did as an assistant, uh, you know, with analog stuff, was there anything there that you would, you, as like, if you were Mr. Miyagi of trailer editing <laughs> and you're going to give them a task that would help them like focus some part of like their storytelling or the editing, what would you make them do? I've made a bunch of our assistants go through the process of making, of creating select strings figuring out how to take the puzzle, take it out into little pieces, arrange those pieces into more digestible bites or strings that you can then access when you need them. I think that's also a great process for, it's one thing to watch a movie. You watch a movie once, watch a movie twice or three or five times. When you start to really break it down and you see it in its little bits and pieces, you start to see connective bits. You start to realize, you know, that kick could really go into that explosion That and that dialogue there really relates to that other dialogue, you know, 40 minutes away in the other section because we're all we're, we're trying to find interconnectedness between all the little bits and pieces in these complex films and i think that's the most important thing is sort of knowing how to break things down effectively so that when the time comes you'll be able to put the pieces together the way that seems so natural and so effortless even though it's could be very heavy lifting what are the things that beginner trailer editors do that you think if they just fix those one or two things or three things their they would their trailer would just be so much better because um it's like it sticks out to you like mm, that's you, know, you don't really have much experience because you did xyz right one of the things that i was taught and i'm really really big on is 
you should be able to play your music track for me and it should sound like it was always meant to be that way. I get that knee-jerk reaction when I hear bad music edits and a lot of junior editors will try to cover it with a sound effect. Like, you know, that's the equivalent of like sort of <coughs> coughing over something and hoping that no one notices. Music's got to be perfect. It's got to sound absolutely seamless. Like it was, it was custom scored. The other bit of advice for like beginning editors or pre pretty much beginner anything is like, you know, just do the thing. But if you're gonna give an assignment for someone like, you know, start making trailers, first trailer, what would you tell them to focus on with that first effort? Like, you know, they're still pretty new to editing software, maybe even, what would you start with? I would say, start with four tracks <laughs> and, and build up from there. See what you can do with the least amount, because that's the challenge. Start with the basic building blocks, track of dialogue, track of sound effects, track of music. What can you do with that? Because you can actually do a lot with three tracks. Uh, don't rely heavily on multiple tracks because that's often just a crutch. You can do great storytelling with three tracks of audio. Very nice. That's a great challenge. I, I want to like give that to people now. <laughs> you can do it. It's absolutely possible. But the thing that I notice is like, hmm, they used all the video transitions in this trailer. Mm -hmm. This is for, like for games, which games is, is very different than, than movies. Uh, that's why I'm like, just don't. <laughs> There's so many wonderful bells and whistles in all the all these uh, editing software, but rely on the basics. The basics are the basics. There's a reason that they've worked for like a hundred years. Let's take one of the trailers that you've made, and if someone were wanted to like study a trailer, like reverse engineer or something like that of one of yours, which one would you recommend that they look at, and why, if you can? How about Panic Room? That was a tough one because there's a good amount of setup, getting the premise across. And then once the premise is across, just creating, that's another great example. There's a, there's a moment in that, and I'm not going to take credit for it, but there's a scene once the, you know, the robbers are in the house where they dropped all the sound out and just hear the foot creaking on the wood and you understand there's someone in the house. Um, so it has that element to it, but then in the back end, just creating the drama, the tension, the images, and but not telling too much of the story and then ending on such a great button like they're locking us in here. There's, you know, there's so much going on in that movie. We're, we're always trying to tease. We're not trying to tell the entire story of the movie. We're trying to tell our own little story to get you to go see the bigger story. I'll have to rewatch it again, even though I probably still remember it by heart once it comes up. It'll be like watching uh, Star Wars again or something like, oh yeah, there's this line, there's this shot. Cool, well, I think I'm out of questions for you. Thank you so much. There is really fun, it's very interesting. But is there anything that you'd like to say to like just the general public about movie trailers or the art of it or? I would just say lastly that there's a lot of very cheap editing software out there and you should go and just do. And then as you get better, give me a call and let's talk about a job. Back in the day, you know, when I started, not everyone had a synchronizer or a flatbed or access to film to try to edit film. You can edit things on your phone now. There's no excuse that anyone has to not try to start being proficient as an editor or a sound editor. There's so many tools that are very, very easily accessible and affordable. You know, I started cutting wedding videos or bar mitzvah videos or anything just to start getting that skill set. Once you have the skill set, you can apply it to almost anything. Cool. Thank you. That's a good note to end on. So thank you so much, Phil, for your, your time. My pleasure. I'm sure our audience will love this. I wish you luck on all your creative endeavors and talk to you some other time in the future. Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. So uh, so thank you for listening to The Cut Down Resurrected. Um, resurrected for now because there were traders we wanted to talk about. And there are more and more traders coming out as theatrical cranks back up. So uh, we will be here intermittently uh, doing what we do. And thank you for uh, listening. Thank you for the support. You can send your questions to cutdown at idlethumbs.net. And we are on Twitter at cutdowncast. And I am Derek underscore Lou. And I'm at Rick Thomas. And we're part of the Idle Thumbs Network. And you can join us on the Idle Thumbs forums if you'd like to discuss this week's episode. <laughs> Remember forums?
things. And if you like the podcast, please leave us a review and tell your friends. And as always, want to give a thank you to our friends at Twisted Jukebox for our intro music. And check out whatisthematrix.com. Yes. Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself.